This is Sean, and you're listening to Promise, a podcast showcasing the heroes of tomorrow. Every episode is an exploration on the idea of promise itself, whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there. I speak with exceptional, purpose-driven people on their journeys to change the world. My guest this week is Nadia Lee, co-founder of That's My Face. That's My Face is out to combat and eliminate deep fakes at the source. In this energetic conversation, we talk about the real-world impacts of deep fakes, what the rapid expansion of AI means for societal trust, how we've gotten to this point, what governments need to be doing more of, how That's My Face targets the source of the issue, why convenience or safety doesn't need to be a choice, and sharing a vision of a safer, more trusting world. Please enjoy my discussion with Nadia Lee. All right, this week, I welcome Nadia Lee, one of the co-founders of a company called That's My Face. That's My Face is setting out to mitigate deep fake uploads. Nadia, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. Very great to be here. I can usually talk hours about That's My Face, so I'll try to keep things concise and to the point today. If you can share with us as much detail as we need to get an understanding of the problem and what you're trying to solve, that would be wonderful. So if we start with a little bit about yourself, Nadia, who you are and what you're trying to do with That's My Face. Hi, I'm Nadia. I came here as a immigrant, a small little Korean girl, not being able to speak English. And my parents poured in everything for my education. I learned through the way they lived and also the kind of work they did because they were in the social workspace that I need to live life with purpose. And so throughout my career, I've tried to live in a way where my work contributes to something. My first job actually was as a AI policy researcher at Greater Than X, which was a GDPR safety by design leading company here in Sydney. And then after that, I worked for ShopHue, which was a, a retail tech platform. And that's how I entered the startup scene. And from there, I started as an intern and became a design director about three years later. They had a couple of big scale projects and I was able to see the full scope of the startup experience. I was also the first hired at a different startups. So I was the first hired at three different startups, actually. And I saw that the startup world, it suited me really well because I'm a very curious person and I like work having more meaning than just like a means to an end. And I saw that it was basically like an aggregate of people who are passionate and very fired up about what they do. And so I thought I found my people. And that's when I began my first venture called Data Alarm that was two years ago and that is now a pretty well-bearing at tech business. We are currently undergoing our AI pivot. It's, it got to a point where the business was stable enough and it was generating enough revenue and it was completely autonomously running. I didn't have to do anything to it. And so I thought, okay, I need to find something I want to dedicate my life to and really work hard at for at least 10 years. And so I thought, okay, I need a business that I feel, first of all, fulfills my purpose-led appetite, but also allows me to scale the business and see the growth from not just small company to 10, 15 employees, but more and internationally too. And so I thought, okay, what's my next thing? So I took a long break, about a month. I traveled, I worked up a few ideas with my great friends who are pretty thick boned in the Australian business scene. 
great friends. Sh- shout out to Josh Goldberg and John Keith and Jared Manny, Sylvia Wong. And they were very kind enough to spend time with me. We were workshopping a few ideas. And I realized that right now, the most important problem facing humanity is the proliferation and democratization of AI. And why I use those terms specifically is because development and innovation in AI is not really a problem. Obviously, um, unbridled innovation is a bit of an issue, and we'll get into that later. But it's that the public has access to it now. And anybody who wants to use AI can use it. And with that, everybody knows the famous case of students using ChatGBT to write their homework. So yada, yada, yada. I was in the scenes. I saw that happen in real time. But to a much more serious cases, which is deep fake and sexual and financial extortion. And the kind of aha moment came when I was scrolling through LinkedIn and I found this article and it was about a Chinese businessman. And he's a pretty smart guy. His business has 40 to 50 employees, a tech company. And his business partner called one day and he was like, hey, do you know the Singapore expression we've been discussing about? The American was super excited. Send me the money. I'll stop setting up shops. And he was like, okay, send the money. And he called his friend. He was like, hey, I sent the money. Do you want to send me the receipt? And he was like, what are you talking about? And it was FaceTime. But the FaceTime was a deep fake of the business partner. And they had used AI voice matching software using the Instagram videos the business partner had uploaded that was publicly accessible. And I remember scrolling through that article and this distinct feeling of my spine thawing. So it was cold and I was like shivering and I just felt it enter me, that story. And I was like, okay, this is not good. How can the most passionate, the most brilliant people that I know who are in the tech space bring humanity to a point where we can't even trust the face of our loved ones anymore? And that just didn't sit right with me. It it very much felt like an Oppenheimer moment. And so I thought, okay, this is the most important thing I could be doing with my time and my energy. And so I thought, what is something that I can do well? with my currently established networks, with my kind of knowledge base. And that was basically providing a GDPR recourse and mitigation mechanism for visual data and for visual image-based abuse content and extortion content. When I dive really deep into something, I go super deep. And so for about three weeks, didn't do anything else. And I was just absorbing that empirical research in the AI ethics space. And I found out that the victims of deep fakes, it's Honestly, like changing rapidly. Every week is different because it's exponential. Actually, 50% of all deepfake porn uploaded on the top 35 sites on the internet have been generated in the first six months of 2023. From that statistic, you can see the exponential increase, right? So every week is different. But when I was researching in April, out of the, let's say there's 100 deepfake victims, out of that, 90 people were women. And just over 60 women were Korean. I'm Korean background. And I was like, that is gross. And I actually watched some of this porn just because I needed to see how far the technology had come and how bad it would be. So I watched it and I realized like, this is digital rape. It's a rape because I couldn't tell. And the technology has advanced even more now, but I just couldn't tell that this was fake at all. I'm not a stupid person. I, I absorb the content every day. And so I thought, okay, this is something that is almost on the precipice of an uncontrollable and impossible to mitigate scale of explosions. I need to do something here. And so from then on, I started looking for a co-founder and I met Sigurd, who is amazing. And as soon as I told him about my idea, he spent like three nights not sleeping, researching, 
And from then on, the idea really took hold. So let's start with the problem, right? So far, defect mitigation and image abuse content mitigation has been done through detection. It's a reactionary safety tech. Last year, the Five Eyes, which is a spy organization between Australia, Canada, and a bunch of other countries, invested just over 150 million USD in sophisticated deepfake detection technology. And recently, the White House in New York, the city of New York, announced further investment. So a lot of the international and funds for safety tech has been going into deepfake detection in the image abuse space. The issue with that is if you look at the empirical research, and even if you spend 30 minutes doing this, that defect detection is not a future-proof technology. And it's never worked properly. It's never worked in practice. And also, it glosses over the fact that very soon, it's literally in the next two years, defects will be undetectable. They'll be perfect. So let's say there's a defect detection technology. It's just going to be like a normal video detection technology. It's just going to be rendered obsolete. And we thought, okay, that's not going to work. So what actually works though? Like what is the, at the core of this problem? And what is the solution that can actually solve the core of this problem? We thought, okay, defect detection is reactionary and often only happens after the devastation has already been um, wrought. So it's already racked up millions of years. The victim has already been victimized over and over. The damage is already done. The money's already gone, whatever. So we thought, okay, the issue here is that we need to stop it before the destruction happens. And we need a technology that's sophisticated enough and stable enough. And we thought, what if we use facial recognition? Facial recognition is a little bit of a oopsie technology in the safety space because people are worried about privacy. People are worried about consent and all of those things. And even in the EU recently, they had an AI summit. And the statement that they made and the recent Biden administration's release of the White House paper on deepfakes, the order on deepfakes and AI technology, it categorizes privacy and facial recognition as like a very dangerous technology with AI. But I think it's interesting because I did um, GDPR consulting in the um, beginning of my career. I know that actually the problem with privacy, it is how you use it, but it's whether you use it without the person's consent for uses that they don't know about. That's the problem. It's not that every single application of the technology or any technology is bad. You just need to make sure that you actually explain, not hide and obscure, but actually explain, okay, this is exactly what we're going to collect. This is exactly how we're going to use it. Do you consent to this? And if they consent, that's fine. It's all about consent. Right. Because of that experience and knowledge that we had, we knew that we could use facial recognition in an ethical way that is not evading any person's privacy. What's really great about facial recognition is that it's already been advanced by Chinese CCTVs, the Israeli government, casinos, like whatever you name it. They've advanced so much so that even if you get rapid identity altering plastic surgery, they could still tell that it's you. I know that there was a lot of issue around four years ago that you could identify white people really well. But then like Asians and black folks and First Nations people in Australia did really poorly. And, but now it's catching up really rapidly. So the research has come up and the gap is pretty, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but it's pretty thin. So we've come far. We thought, okay, what if we solve the problem by having a database of faces that users can send and upload themselves? And when a bad actor, let's say they make like a financial extortion video out of you or they use defect technology to live stream something or whatever. And as that kind of visual data hits, before it gets uploaded, before it starts, our technology crawls through the database surfaces. And if it's more than a 95% match and the content has 
the characteristics and the traits of a high-risk content. For example, lots of flesh or a very formal-looking setting, a suit and like whatever else. And then it pauses the upload. It stops it, lets the platform know, lets the user know. And once they verify, oh, actually, this is bad. This is bad. Then that user gets tagged as bad and whatever else. So it really is a rapidly scalable off the shelf, but also used in a kind of like novel way, not reactionary, but proactive safety tech for image-based abuse and visual content. So yeah, that's my face. That's what we do. Wonderful. Rocket ship of an introduction. It was a great level of detail and a wonderful way to frame, I guess, what you might say is the greatest tech versus ethics challenge of our time and something that is at least outside of any warfare scenarios, I would say. One of the parts of your response, you mentioned that you were wondering how the smartest and brightest people that you knew in tech had gotten us to this point. So I'm wondering if you have an answer to that. How do you think we've gotten to this point? And do you think there's any parties that have a vested interest to see this kind of tech more widespread? Mainly it's two things. Number one, the hyper growth infinite growth mindset and the philosophy that underpin modern businesses and also the capitalist structure of the business themselves. When I talk to a lot of these people, a lot of them are my friends. So a lot of my friends work in Google, Apple, these kind of big tech giants who are doing great AI stuff. Some of them are directly in those teams and they are not bad people. They honestly are curious. They're just excited. They're very bright people. They want to do good for humanity. Yes, they are not naive and they have reservations for what they do, but they also have like bills to pay and they have things to do, right? And so I don't think these engineers are bad people, but I do think the structure where them as a puzzle piece fit in, the bigger structure of that business, is what's driving the erosion of ethics in our capitalist society. For example, having to appease and live up to the shareholders' expectations of growth and the design of even the raising of startup system where you have to triple or quadruple every time so that you can get like series B, C. A lot of my friends also are in investment and how they look at growth. And it's interesting how, how they invest in tech businesses versus how they invest in traditional business really different. When they look at tech businesses, they do look at profit, but they look at future growth potential. And that's been the biggest motivator for these guys to go in and put in huge money. And so these tech businesses have the kind of expectation that they have to meet that. And I think that's been the core, in, in one simple word, how we do business in tech has been the perpetrator, I think, the culprit of this erosion of ethics. Okay, I guess something that's playing out in the AI space at the moment is the contest between being closed source or open source. And I'm wondering if you take a side on that at all. So one thing that I have to make really clear off the bat is that I haven't looked into it too much. My tech co-founder would have a lot more to say on this, but I have, through the grapevine, reading up on AI, I have had a little glimpses into what's happening. And... I have to say that I think closed source is never good. And let me rephrase that. Pros and cons to everything, right? Pros and cons to everything. But what is the bigger picture here? I am all for mediation, obviously. I'm all for policy and giving companies a very clear framework to work in so that we don't erode the fundamental fabric of humanity. 
But what has happened when things were closed up? You can just look back in history, right? When things are in isolation, when certain people are the only ones who have access to certain things, it's never benefited the majority. It's always benefited the minority. And so if you look at that pattern of human behavior and how closed loop systems and isolated systems have played out throughout history, I don't think it's going to be a good solution to anything. And so I definitely, with the shallow context that I have, am proponent of open source, but in terms of what that looks like, so like open source, yes, but does that mean zero mitigation, tech optimist, whatever, that's probably not the way either. Open source over closed source any day, but in terms of the intricacies, I would have to go back to you. Yeah, no problem. It's definitely a, a thorny and deep subject, so... I wouldn't expect a short answer in, in this podcast. But that said, it's clear that you've dug into this space a lot. And a lot of what you've spoken about has received quite a lot of coverage in the past. Is there anything that you can point to through all of the research that you've done, something that people aren't paying enough attention to that they really should do? Oh, yeah, I actually have a good answer for this. I have something that I want to say. So recently... That's my face. It was actually just Friday. We had our first collaborative workshop with Panorama, which is Silicon Valley based, but it's international. They have headquarters in America, but they have people all over the world. And they are the ethics-based, not-for-profit organization that also has a fund, a collaborative fund to fund these businesses that can solve the world's biggest problems. But one of the things that they mentioned was there's so much going on and there's so much talk around what we should do, a lot of collaboration, the Public E-Safety Commission of Australia, meeting E-Safety Commission of Germany, or big tech people coming into AI ethics or whatever and like talk. But they're not actually talking to the victims. So a lot of the victim advocacy groups will be reaching out to the E-Safety Commissioner or the tech businesses being like, hey, by the way, I think this is what you should do. Like, this is what we, we've experienced. We, I would love to chat for free. This is not even like for money. Let us just come to you, talk about our experience. I think this is what we need. But they will just never get a response. And this is not just like a rogue cold email, right? They're doing it through like a panorama vision like a foundation, but ne they never get a response. And I thought that was so bizarre and re revolting <laughs> in many ways, just because, do you know, in the tech startup world, we emphasize you have to talk to the users. If you're a startup, investors like, so how many users have you talked to? There's so much emphasis on user research, digging into the problem, knowing what the user's problems are, that it's kind of part of our culture. It's part of how, how we work for a good reason. Because how are you going to solve the problem if you don't know the problem? If you haven't talked to people that have experienced the problem? And so I think one question I want to ask anyone who's listened to this podcast or if people are in the policy space or in the big tech companies who are listening to this podcast is, have you actually met a victim? Have you had a conversation with somebody who has gone through this problem, who has lost money, who has been a victim of a sexual extortion? Have you talked to these people? Have you learned about their experience and what they would like as a recourse? And if you're not doing that, which is what I'm hearing from all the victim advocacy groups that we've been talking to, which is many, I'm worried about whether we're going in the right direction. Although that said, I suppose that creates an area of opportunity for someone like yourself. And okay, if we flip that question around yeah. and look at what do you think is getting far more attention than it deserves? 
big statements from big governments and big tech companies. I know people in government who do this work. I know people in big tech that do this work. They do not mean harm. They're really smart people that really want to make a difference. But I think every time these things happen, they know they have to work quickly, but they don't want to do anything that sacrifices even a slight bit of their profit. And so they make a statement that sounds really fancy. I'm English tutor on the side. And so I'm analyzing language every time. Like every day I'm analyzing language. Okay, this is what's happening. This is the intention behind the language. And it's really funny because a lot of the times when I read statements, Yes, you're talking about things, you're talking about important topics, but this is not actually promising anything concrete. I don't think anything's going to change after this. Like zero things. Because I can see that you're glossing over things here. Those LinkedIn posts like, this week, I'm so proud to announce that we have officially committed to blow, it's got 2,000 shares. And all the employees like, I'm so proud to be part of this organization. I'm like, I'm like, come on, guys. Are we kidding ourselves? So yeah, I think big statements. Big one when the organization is definitely getting more attention than it deserves. I recently shared a victim advocacy article on That's My Face. I'm going through all the different victim experiences and it's got, what, five likes. That I've been, I'm so proud to announce blah, blah, 3,000. So yeah, generally, I think we're listening far less to victims and paying far more attention to big statements that don't bring any concrete change. Got it. Okay, and a, a call out to anybody who's listening to up your game, I guess. Actually, you've raised a, a good point there about listening to users and listening to customers or in, in your case, victim advocacy groups. I'm wondering how much of your background in design might actually play into leaning into that space as a designer and researcher. Research is my favorite part of the design process. Yeah. How, how do you think that's influenced the way that you've gone about building That's My Face? I think it's influenced me hugely. I think there are various factors, right? In uni, I studied fashion design, shocker, <laughs> and creative intelligence and innovation, which is basically like a business degree, but future focused. And both of those degrees were all about purpose-led design and design fit for purpose. In fashion, I think there are some things that are artistic expressions and, and by themselves are beautiful. But a lot of the times it actually does emphasize it in creative intelligence and innovation, mostly, most definitely. So what is the purpose of this? Like, why are we making it? Who's going to use it? What is the problem? And I think that education and also my experience as a design director at my previous startup has definitely 100% influenced my problem-focused, user-obsessed approach to That's My Face. And I have my design professors to thank for that. Yeah. Okay, so we've learned a little bit about That's My Face. We've learned a bit about the regulatory landscape. Let's talk about the solution itself. Now, you've said what you try to do is you stop information being shared at the point of upload, basically. Yes, and exactly. you do a whole bunch of scanning in the process yeah. of the upload. So what I'm curious about is, do you do any work post-upload to combat any information that's already out there with the scanning technology that you currently have? Yeah. So two weeks ago, our beta technology has just dropped and we've been experimenting and playing around with that a lot. And currently our CTO is developing the API engine that will sit behind that. But also in the middle, he has found out that a lot of the existing bad image-based abuse out there is the same content. It's the same video, but it's got a different filter on it or it's cut in a different way, or they pixelate it a little bit, or like whatever else, right? And so actually, when someone, let's say a bad actor, tries to upload this thing, 
and that's my advice, identifies it, stops it. That content that user gets flagged, right? They get tagged as this is bad. Then any video or any image that shares the visual data of that content can then get stamped and flagged too. And we can go through the database of that platform and pick these things out one by one. So it, it gives us a almost like a foolproof stamping for bad content. We can definitely go back in time and do that, which seemed impossible, but it is possible. So yeah, that's why we call actually our technology very proudly eradication technology. And a lot of the, this is, oh yeah, is this really eradication? I'm like, yes, because it does not only identify and stop it before the upload, but it can actually go back in time too. So very exciting. It's the new frontier of safety tech. And I just can't wait for other safety tech people to do similar things and we can make the world a bit better. Awesome. Okay. Now, earlier on, you've talked about how this could be used for videos and you said it's a general visual tool. So does this actually also work for still images? Does it also work for voice recognition as part of video? The limitations here. So right now in this current form, it works for images and videos. Images are super easy. So videos are slightly harder, but that's how we've developed the tech. And voice hasn't been our focus yet because our whole premise of our technology is that's my face, it's facial recognition. But definitely in the future, we could do that, but we haven't explored that. We don't plan on exploring it anytime soon. And what's interesting is we've run numbers and last year Pornhub was sued for a little over 60 million in total for image-based abuse and wrong proliferation of malicious media. And if they had used That's My Face on every single video that had been uploaded on Pornhub last year, we haven't decreased the number at all, then they would have reduced the cost by 9.5%. It would have cost them just over 110K. And what is really exciting about that also is it's not just about image-based abuse. Obviously, that's the kind of most high impact and our tech is a safety tech solution. But because it's an API, they can also use it. So they have a huge problem of actually consensual adult content and also other platforms, so YouTube or TikTok or whatever. They have content that people pay for, right? People download it, they upload it for whatever reason, they're losing money through that. They can also identify those content as well on the behalf of the content creators, on the behalf of themselves, of companies. And so the use case is actually quite infinite, um, but we do want to focus on safety tech and image abuse, image-based abuse for now. But obviously we do raise it in our meetings with our clients. That is something that they can do as well. Got it. Now you've referenced Pornhub directly there. I'm wondering who your target clients might be in that case. Is it purely just a player like Pornhub and its associated brands or a company like OnlyFans where there's potential for, I guess, much more high impact deep fake technology? Or are you also branching out to just general purpose video and image uploading? So most of the abuse and most of the misuse of your face and the facial biometric data happens in the bigger platforms. So TikTok, YouTube, I think Pornhub and all those guys get the biggest spotlight because they have that kind of image and also they host certain kinds of content. But actually the most amount of extortion happens on TikTok, YouTube, X those kind of bigger guys because they're more publicly accessible. And so our end client is that we actually have our clients in three different buckets, T1, T2, T3. So T1 guys are people that directly need this technology now, and it is commercially viable for them to incorporate it into their cybersecurity mechanisms. It allows us to, yes, secure our first revenue, but also provide direct um, value and also validate our tech. So those will be 
guys that we're talking to now, like learned group in EdTech that need student engagement data and also need identity verification for licenses and like blah, blah, and tests and whatever. And the second tier businesses would be very specific brands, for example, like Shutterstock. They have commercialized visual data, but also guys like OnlyFans or RedTube or like Pornhub. And then the third guys will be TikTok and YouTube and the bigger guys. And that's how we're approaching it now. And we have actually secured some MOUs and we are at the final stages of securing our first revenue with the tier one businesses. And after that, we'll be moving on through. Okay. Now, I guess the thorny question of how does someone actually secure their own face? So... How do you go about building out this database of people's faces? How do you get their consent to add their face to your database? And then how do you keep that database secure? Right now, there are a couple of different avenues that we are exploring. Number one, a good option is localized data. So Face ID already has a very detailed scan of your face, but those guys store it locally. The reason why they do that is because if they have a huge database of all of our faces, and that gets infiltrated, then all of our faces get taken away. But if they infiltrate one device and they take just one face, yeah, sucks for that person. But the scale of damage is a lot narrower and smaller. So they do localized storage. We have actually consulted a couple of really great cybersecurity experts on this problem at the very beginning of the precipice of our idea, because I have that kind of policy research background. I really want to make sure that it was secure. And one of the um, people that we consulted, a pretty famous hacker called Alex Hope, he said the best way to do it in the beginning, and I agree, and the research, when I looked it up, does back it up, is to rely and lean on a lot of businesses that already have really good cybersecurity practice. And for example, the video scraping tool that we'll be using is one that's been developed by Google. Google has really good security practices and they have a commitment in the tech stack to make sure that it's very secure. That's why they were the first guys to do two-factor authentication for the simplest kind of examples. And the video crawling technology will be using Google's. In terms of obtaining consent, I'm really passionate about informed consent. Because why wouldn't I be? I am a woman. I've seen all this stuff. I already have work experience and background on that. I've designed some of the terms and conditions and workflows that some innovative companies have adopted when I was working at the privacy agency. How do you obtain consent from the users? Make it really clear. This is exactly what we'll be collecting. These guys are the people who will have access to your data. This is exactly how we're going to use it, how we're going to use that data. Do you agree? Just make it transparent. Make it fully there and it's legally compliant. The users know how it's going to be used and uh, there's no problem. That's how we're going to do it. Very informed, simple, easy to understand, no fluffing around, no obscurity. This is exactly what we're going to collect and how we're going to use it. All right, got it. And I presume that will be part of the terms and conditions of use, uh, which I think statistically has been shown to be the most skipped over material on the internet. Oh, that was like the entire problem of my first startup that I worked for. That was literally what we were trying to solve. It takes such a long time to get into this whole thing. But basically, the most important thing you need to know is the best thing to do is not do the automatic tick thing. You make them go through, but it's like a expandable tab. So it's all user experience. These are the most important words that you need to know. And if you want to expand and learn more about it, here it is. Make it user friendly, make it fun to read. And at the end, they have to actually tick through in every category. 
and then you have to make them give consent at the end. And I know a lot of people will be like, oh, that sucks. And we're going to have user drop. But the thing is, the nature of our business, we're going to be dealing with the most sensitive data that's out there. So we do have to go through it. And actually, companies, you have to get ready for it because the governments are becoming more and more aware of the fact that we need better compliance. We need better mitigation. And it will probably come soon to you. So if you don't figure out a way to do informed consent, then you'll be left behind. It doesn't matter whether people choose convenience over safety. It's coming down the road anyway. Yeah, exactly. And just give them convenient safety. I know that it sounds like an oxymoron, but it doesn't have to be. Just talk to the right people. Talk to the people that know how to do this. You, you don't have to have 99% user dropout, right? Doesn't happen. Got it. All right. Now, since we're on the topic of things that are coming down the pipeline, you've mentioned that you've been having some conversations with uh, investors recently. I'm curious what your next steps are. Yeah, totally. Sigurd and I have a really good philosophy when it comes to running a business, and that is minimizing meetings and making sure that we're hitting everything planned out to hit every week. So I take care of a lot of the investor conversations, but with investor conversations, it usually goes that they want to know you, they want to know what you're doing. Yes, investors are coming down in the top pipeline. We've had VCs contact us from all over the world, but what we're focusing now on are business goals. Get this client through. Get the revenue through. Make sure that the collaboration is going well. Make sure that we are still aligning with the victim advocacy groups. Have a collaboration there. And we're just trying to make sure that we are doing the right thing to make sure that's my fix properly solved the problem that we are trying to solve. And we are going through the right steps in doing so. So what's next in the pipeline is just building a sound business, getting that first client through the door, making sure that our tech continues to develop. And if investment comes in, and if it doesn't, so be it. You've mentioned a whole variety of stakeholders that you would need to work with in order to see this through. So you've got government on one side, you've got the victim advocacy groups on the other side, you've got content platforms on a third side as well, and obviously getting consent from the users of such platforms. It's a very complex web. What I'd like to know is, out of all of that multitude of people that you could be working with, are there any dream organizations you want to partner with in the near future? I think the near future, I think it will be most definitely Pornhub, OnlyFans, Snapchat, X. And the reason why I have those clients are all for different distinct reasons. So Pornhub is where the most viscerally felt damage is experienced. And we know this from the victim advocacy groups. So we would like to work with them directly and have the biggest impact with their blessing because they want this problem to be solved too. So I just want to solve the problem. It's not even like a business thing. There's a problem there. It's a big one. Let's just solve it. So like that, Pornhub. OnlyFans, because I think it'll be an interesting conversation about premium content and how to protect that. Snapchat, because that's where a lot of teens experience victimization. And X, actually, that's where a lot of the revenge porn and financial extortion actually happens, is on X. Very surprising statistic when I started doing the research. And it'll be great to, to collaborate with them and, again, have the most amount of impact. So those four organizations are because we can have the most impact and solve the biggest pieces of the problems. Though I hear X slash formerly known as Twitter doesn't respond kindly to any kind of media outreach, especially around policy breaches and whatnot. No, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But they know that they have a big problem there. Uh, you said dream ones, X. It's not a dream one, but it's the one where a lot of 
destruction is happening. So mentioned it. Got it. Dream large. Can't fault the ambition there. Okay, now this seems an enormous problem for just yourself and Sigurd to solve on your own. And I know you have a network of people who are assisting you, but in terms of getting your business into the position that it needs to be to tackle this problem genuinely, do you think there are any additional skills you might want to grow and to take these problems head on? Yeah, definitely. I think we definitely need two more people, one person more than the other. So in the near future, in the next six months, we need a full stack engineer, front end, back end to help Sigurd and basically help us develop the tailored solutions that we need to develop for our first set of clients. So we need that. And then the second person that we need is a almost like an advocate and slash like sales person in the bigger compliance spaces, in the government, in tech. And we're trying to secure them through an advisor role. And if we cannot, then we'll have to pay them on some kind of a way. But I think those two people are probably the most critical for the business in the next six months. How are we going to get there? We are in talks with a couple of different VCs, but we'll just see what happens with the funding. But we would love to be full-time from next year for six months with the other person to really push the technology to the next level. And so, yeah, we'll see what we can do. But in terms of the team, full stack engineer, and then a advocacy person who's connected to the key decision makers in bigger organizations. Got it. All right. Perhaps if anybody is listening and you happen to fit the bill on either of those accounts, we'll get you in touch with Nadia and we'll get Nadia's socials and contact info at the end of the show. All right, Nadia, if everything goes right for you and you succeed with everything that you're putting your efforts into at the moment, what do you think the world will look like? I think the world will look very similar to today with more crazy technology, but without us having to worry whether our mom's calling us or a fraudster. And so it's going to look the same. Well, you'll just be able to say, that's her face. And I know that. And so I think that's what the world's going to look like. And in terms of the business, we'll probably be working internationally with organizations to have high impact outcomes all over the world. But the world will just look the same. <laughs> but a bit safer, just a bit safer. Okay. And given that you said it's your long-term mission to see this through and to solve this problem, what do you think you personally need to do to get us to that safer world? I see a really clear role that I have to play. No one can do everything. And everybody has different strengths. And everybody has different pieces of the pie that they can contribute to to bring the problem to a better place. It is only through and with everybody's contribution that we can actually solve the problem. Individually, we can only bring it to a better place. And so I know what I can do and what I'm talented in is making connections with people, having conversations, getting people excited about a problem, getting people to work with small organizations that are actually doing good work. And so I will continue to do that in any capacity, in any shape or form, and continue to send messages to important people, having conversations and making them excited, making them aware of this problem. And that's what I'll continue to do. And together, that's my face. We'll continue to be innovators in the safe tech space, solve the image beast problem. And I'm sure Sigurd and you and everybody else out there will have different answers to the question, to the very good question. Thank you for taking the time out to have a chat with me. Nadia, it's been an enormous pleasure to interview you and to hear a bit more about that's my face the last thing i'll get you to do is to share any social media or contact info in case anybody is interested in finding out more about that's my face 
or getting in touch with you specifically? Yay. So I'm on LinkedIn. That's my face is on LinkedIn. That's the only social media platform that we have. And we have a website. That's myface.com. Wonderful. All the links will go in the show notes as usual. Nadia, thank you once again. That's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm. Otherwise, subscribe and stay tuned to learn from tomorrow's heroes and what we've got is promise.